Let's turn to Hebrews 13. We're going to look at the nature of that grace that's been extended to us as our uh, little ones, ages three through first grade, are invited to participate in Children's Church. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Sandy, for leading those guys. Hey, while you're turning to Hebrews 13, there's an insert in your bulletin uh, just giving you an orientation to this Wednesday being Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, uh, and it's a season in the church where we're trying to just sort of quiet our hearts, fill our hearts, uh, and, and reflect on the, the grace of God to us through Jesus. And to that end, we've got a devotional that's available for you in the foyer if you want to grab that. Um, that'll help, help us with kind of uh, in our scripture and prayer, how we're thinking about uh, the, the period leading up to Easter. And, uh, and then for Ash Wednesday in particular, I know it's Valentine's Day, but nothing says love like coming together and fasting and praying and, uh, and breaking our fast at the Lord's Supper. Uh, we'll have a brief communion service at six o'clock uh, this Wednesday night. It's earlier than we normally do some of our Wednesday our evening functions, but at six o'clock we'll, we'll break our fast together. We're just asking you to fast as the Holy Spirit leads you. There's no formula that makes you a super Christian, but whatever you want to, um, to, to do without, on Wednesday, uh, to make room for, like it's not just an exercise in deprivation. We're making room for, for more of God's presence, more of his word, more, more time with him in prayer, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, come and we'll break our fast together. And we're also asking you to bring um, something to share for a meal together, uh, breakfast casseroles. <laughs> See what we did there. We're going to break our fast together with breakfast. Bring a breakfast casserole uh, bring, bring a dessert to share since it's Valentine's Day. Who knows? Um, and, and we'll just enjoy a meal together afterward. All right, if you're in Hebrews 13, let's stand in honor of God's Word if you're able. And I'm going to read verses 7 to 16. Uh, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Lord, thank you for the reading and hearing and receiving of your word. Please bless your people. Help us to to know and and go uh, to Jesus, even outside the gate. Uh, that we might know him better. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. 
Uh, there's a lot here, but let me just zero in on a, on a few things. We're going to look at how Jesus is the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever. Uh, that certainly has implications on how we view the gospel, what this message is, uh, and how we have an altar that's different from uh, the altars of you know, world religions or even the altar of the Old Testament. Uh, our altar is no longer in the city. It's no longer in a man-made temple. It's outside the city. It's in, it's in God's temple, so to speak, um, not made with human hands, and, and it's eternal. And so we want to look at that altar and, um, and remember that even though we're here in this world and we're kind of walking through life as we know it, um, this is not our lasting home. Here we have no lasting city. And so kind of maintaining that mindset, uh, how, where do we get our worth? Where do we get our, our value, our significance? It's not from this world. Uh, nothing lasting can, can, is going to uh, remain in this world. We need something that's going to last, and that, that comes from heaven. So let's start with how uh, Jesus Christ is, is the same and, and just remark about remembering your leaders, uh, those who spoke to you the word of God and consider their outcome, um, the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, right? Why? Uh, why would we be looking to these leaders, you know, those who spoke the word of God to you and imitating their faith? Well, because presumably uh, these are the uh, the leaders, uh, you know, the pastors, the, the Bible study leaders, the home group leaders, the Sunday school teachers, the, the moms and the dads teaching their children. These are the leaders who are faithfully keeping Jesus in front of those whom are under their influence. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this, this word, the word of God that they, are, that they are speaking hasn't changed because Jesus hasn't changed. And so this message that they are giving is, is valuable, and it's, it's going to keep us in the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus, who Revelation tells us, you know, is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And so, you know, Hebrews, uh, as we get to the end, we're here in chapter 13, uh, it's kind of nice that you get to the conclusion, and, and it's not really a surprise to us that, that Hebrews is going to kind of give us a summary of what has been, what's been the message all along. So if you're just kind of new, new to Tabernacle, and you're joining us here at the end of this series in Hebrews, all throughout this book, the author's been reminding us that Jesus is greater than all of the, um, the types and the sort of placeholders that God had given to his people all along, all throughout church history, all throughout old, the Old Testament. And this goes way, way back, um, you know, to the first books of the Bible. Uh, and how Hebrews has been telling us that, that Jesus is greater than the angels. And, and Jesus is greater uh, than some of these figures like Abraham and like Melchizedek and like Moses. And Jesus is greater than the prophets. And he's greater than the priests. And he's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than all of these ways that God was communicating his grace to his people. And he was saying, it's like this. And it's like this person. And it's like this office. And all of those had, had some truth to them about the way that God's grace would come to us, but none of them were exhaustive. Until we get to Jesus. And, you know, Hebrews is winding up saying, hey, don't, don't lose sight of this main message Remember the leaders who have faithfully taught you the word of God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how did Hebrews begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. 
talks about how long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's, he's the, this is the word of God. God has spoken to us by his son, and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is there any greater word that God could give us than the exact uh, imprint, you know, this, this radiance of the glory of God? You, you, you can't surpass that. There's no superlative greater than Jesus. And I know this sort of raises the eyebrows of those who think that, you know, well, come on, everybody's kind of figuring, figuring out their own path to God, and there's lots of different you know, religious figureheads, lots of different prophets or people who speak for God. But this is really the testimony of Hebrews. This is the testimony of the Bible. that when God wanted to give us his greatest revelation of who he is, when he wanted to show us his exact imprint, when he wanted to give us what the icon of God looks like, he gave us Jesus. And, and so why would we ever move on from that? Why, why would we move on from the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's never going to change. We can't improve on him. And so this is why, um, this is why we want to remember those who, who faithfully have, have preached this message and have taught this message and demonstrated that Jesus is the word of God for us. And so he's where we go. He is where we receive and experience the grace that God extends to his people. Uh, this is why in chapter 4, Hebrews was telling us things like, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We all have need. We all have times where we're aware of that need. We're, we're needy all the time, but there are particular times when we go, I need help. And Jesus is the one who God has given us so that we can get that grace and find help in time of need. Um, verse 9 is telling us that this isn't what everybody teaches. Uh, there are faithful men and women who have taught us these things, and then there are those who would lead you away. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, uh, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Um, you know, I just think that is one of the most beautiful descriptions of what discipleship looks like that, that is found in the Bible. When you want to know, like, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What is discipleship? What is what does growth as a Christian look like? I want you to zero in on verse 9 where it says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That's what following Jesus is all about. Being strengthened by his grace. You know, we're winding down Hebrews. It makes sense that this, at the conclusion of this book, it's going to summarize again for us what the main message is. Don't, don't turn back. Don't go to those placeholders, those types, those, those imperfect. I mean, they were helpful. The priesthood, the sacrifices, Moses, Melchizedek, Abraham, you know, the prophets, they, the angels, they're helpful, but they're not exhaustive. Jesus is exhaustive. We, we can't improve on him. We can't do better than him. And so 
Hebrews is saying, be strengthened by his grace. Don't get sucked in uh, by false teachers who want to divert your attention away from Jesus. And, and so don't go back to those old ways of relaying, relating to God, like, the, like even in this case, like the food, food laws. Like I'm not going to have time to go into all of the, the dietary restrictions and those codes, but those were some, like in a way, they were showing us, this is what holiness looks like. And here's the grace that God gives us through some of the, even like the, the sacrifices that you can give, oil and wheat and some of those food offerings, right? So when God's um, grace is what is strengthening us, we become, a, um, a, we become better disciples. Um, we become more beautiful disciples. We become uh, disciples who don't have a chip on our shoulder anymore. Uh, we become a lot less defensive, a lot easier uh, to be around, we just become kind of more joyful and more full of the grace that is strengthening us. Um, let me tell you how this works. Um, Tim Keller, who is a pastor in, in New York, he's with the Lord now, uh, and I miss him. <laughs> uh, he was fond of saying that the good news of the gospel is that the cross simultaneously shows us how sinful we are and how loved we are. We literally say, cheer up. <laughs> you're far more sinful than you ever imagine, and you're far more loved than you ever dared dream. And, and that is what it means to be strengthened by grace. So the cross, what does the cross do? The crucifixion, if, if that, <laughs> if the crucifixion of Jesus is what was required in order to atone for my sins, then that is God's commentary it's God's analysis of how desperate my need is. And it is simultaneously God's commentary, God's analysis of how loved I am. Both, both become really, really clear the closer we look at the cross, right? So, so let's talk about like the cross as a commentary on our need, on, on our sinfulness. Um, if, if you're anything like me, like I have this constant, um, you, know, you, ever, you know, when you're in the pool and you've got the, uh, the ball that you blow up, you know, the beach ball, and you try to push it under the water, and it's an effort. Like, you can do it, but it takes, it, it takes a little bit of effort. And then every now and then something, you know, you, you lose your balance and the ball slips up and it comes above the water line. That's my defensiveness. That ball trying to hold it under the water is me trying not to get defensive whenever somebody... You know, and maybe they're just being hypercritical and judgmental, and, and I don't like that. Maybe they're just trying to come to me and saying, hey, have you looked at this, SN? Like, I'm wondering if you're missing something. When somebody, try, when, when somebody corrects me, when somebody shows me my fault, when somebody points out, hey, you didn't quite measure up to this, I, I've got that beach ball. Of my defensiveness, of my pride, of my desire to be right, the Bible calls it righteousness, if, if you want the theological word. They're the same thing. And I don't think I'm alone with this beach ball, am I? <laughs> I mean, this is universal. This is our human condition. We don't like people telling us that we're wrong. How dare they? <laughs> and along comes the gospel. It says, you can just let that beach ball go. You, you, can, you, you can stop playing the game. Because what the gospel says to that person, you know, it says to me and to all of us, is that, you know what? Hey, thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for the, correcting me. Thank you for... Even, you know, rebuke and, 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 um, and, and pointing out sin, like, thank you for that. 
guess what? You don't know the half of it. I mean, because I, I, I know when I'm, what, what's not evident to the people. I, I know the, the, the thoughts and the, and the assumptions and, and, you know, the darker things that aren't on display to the world. And that's what the cross accurately diagnoses in us. That the world doesn't, the world's only scratching the surface when it corrects us. And when, even when it condemns us, the cross shows us, no, you needed the the, the atoning death of the Son of God to, to cover your sins. I'm like, my goodness, is my need that great? And if, and if I can just sort of be released from trying to play this game where I'm trying to pretend like I'm right all the time, then, then that makes me a far less defensive disciple. And that's what it means to be strengthened by grace from that turn. And then, you know, we'd look at this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, or Valentine's Day, as some of you might refer to it, and when we think about how much does God love us, the, the person on the street might be tempted to say, well, of course God loves me. I mean, that's sort of like his job. And then you might press and go, well, how do you know that he loves you? How are you sure that he loves you? Uh, well, he just loves everybody, right? Well, no, not, how do you know that he loves you? Not just this generic love that really kind of doesn't really mean anything, but how do you know that he knows you as an individual and not only tolerates you, but embraces you? How do you know that's true? And people might kind of go, well, I don't know. I remember that song from when I was a kid. Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible, Bible tells me so. Well, oh yeah, where does it tell you? And they might even come up with like a verse from from John, 1 John chapter 4, where it literally says, God is love. But even that kind of doesn't really get to the brass tacks of where and when did God prove his love to you. And then you can turn to 1 John 3.16. Oh, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know. That's the commentary of the cross, not only on my need, but also on his love. And Paul would say things like, you know, the, the, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that, that that's the love that God has for you? When you look at the cross, do you see it as a commentary on, like, I need his grace so much and, and I need his love so much. That's what it communicates to us. That's what we receive from the cross. And it, and it silences our, our insecurities about God's love being sort of circumstantial. Oh, things are going good. He must love me. Or, oh man, the world is, is caving in around me. What have I done wrong? And it wipes out all that insecurity. It wipes out all that performance anxiety to where we are strengthened by grace. Does that make sense? You see how grace strengthens us so that we're not so fragile in the face of people's complaints or criticisms, and we're strengthened by the secure love that God has for us, not based on my performance and my obedience or even put at risk by my failures and my inconsistency. That's what it means to be strengthened by grace. This is the message of the Bible, of the gospel, and it's happened, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When God's looking at Adam and Eve going, you blew it. 
but I'm going to love you and pursue you anyway. And I'm going to provide a substitute. And, and, you know, yeah, Satan's going to nip him at his heel and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I'm going to do that for you because I love you, not because of anything you're going to do. And this is, the, this is what leads us to this whole notion of like an altar, an alternative altar that's not inside the temple, it's not inside the city, but it's outside the city, outside the gate, right? Verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Um, you know, Hebrews has all kinds of these Old Testament references, and so, yeah, we need the Old Testament. Uh, those types, those shadows and placeholders have a, a real value to us to teach us about the nature of God's love and about the nature of his grace and the forgiveness that Jesus provides. And, and Isaiah, the prophet, had incredible, vivid descriptions of this grace that comes to us. Some of you are familiar with this passage. If this is new for you, listen to the vividness that Isaiah, um, you know, prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus, listen to how, how clearly he's describing what Jesus endured. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. Like so repulsive to humanity, they would hide their face from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Like, um, I'm, I'm being a little naughty here to kind of even bring up and evoke some of these images, but whenever artists tend to depict Jesus, whenever we get a visual, maybe it's in film or media or whatever, why is it always they pick a good-looking actor? Why, why do they always pick a good-looking guy like, you know, Taylor McPherson or Mike Kelly? You know, just really good, you know, gosh, what a handsome man. And he's, you know, the Jesus that we always get that, that's depicted before us, he's got the square jaw and the, you know, just that prominent, handsome nose and the kind eyes and the good hair, right? I just don't think that's accurate. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Why would you put that face on the magazine cover? That? Him? There's one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him. Here's how we regarded him. Stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, like literally cursed. That guy is cursed. That's how people regarded Jesus. He suffered outside the gate, meaning he was rejected. He was thrown outside the city walls where, where the undesirables are, where the undesirable things are, like where people took their trash. That's what we did with Jesus. Um, I don't know a better description of, of how to summarize the uh, the way we regarded Jesus um, in his life and in his death than, than what was written almost, I think, over 100 years ago by a theologian named Herman Hoeksema. 
And, and so we just have no idea. We, we, our our, our uh, imaginations really aren't developed enough to understand how much Jesus was despised. It, it can't be overstated. But I think this is a pretty good statement. And so I'm going to, forgive me, I'm going to do, do something wrong here. I'm going to read you a long quote, but I'm going to try to like break it up a little bit. But just, just let this wash over you, please. Just hang in there with me and listen to the ways that we regarded Jesus. How deeply he was despised and how universally he was made an object of contempt. Something to, to throw out of the city, right? That's what we're talking about. If you ask the scribes, the chief priests of Israel, the Pharisees, and the leaders of the people about him, these were the cultural influencers, the religious guides, and so on, they answered that he was a deceiver of the people who must be scrupulously avoided as a dangerous man. That's how they regarded Jesus. He's a liar. Stay away from him. They answered that he was a glutton and a winebibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. That is no way for a prophet to act. A prophet, if he knew who he, if he was a prophet, he would not be hanging around those people. And they all said that he was an ally of Beelzebub, of, of Satan, who performed his signs and wonders through the power of the prince of darkness. I just, I still, I, I hope I never get over this. Jesus like heals this man with a withered hand and everybody looks at him. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he's doing that on the Sabbath day. He raises people and heals people and everybody's going, oh, he's doing that through the powers of darkness. Can you imagine? And they said that he was not ashamed to utter the most awful blasphemies, making himself the son of God and that he was a rebel, a revolutionary a man worthy of death. So that's Jesus during his earthly ministry during his life, right? And then although an enthusiastic crowd for a time followed him and shouted their hosannas, they too finally forsook him and left him alone. Palm Sunday, right? And then Good Friday. And literally, he becomes rejected and forsaken of all, despised by everyone. No one ultimately takes his side. And when he finally stands alone, forsaken by all, then men heap all the contempt upon him that could possibly arise in the minds of ungodly men. And they utter false testimony against him. They condemn him to death. They mock him and spit in his face. They hit him and scourge his back. They crown him with the mock crown of thorns. They put a mock scepter in his hands. And they put a robe of, of mock royalty about his shoulders and offer him mock honor. And thus they hang him on the accursed tree. Despised and rejected by all the world, forsaken by all men. And the leaders of the people and Caiaphas Soldiers and officers, the whole world despises him. He is the reproach of all. And it is beyond remarkable to me that when Jesus left his heavenly home, his heavenly city for this world and this earthly city, this was no surprise to him. He knew what he was getting into. He, he left the beauty of heaven to in, inhabit our, 
our brokenness. And our brokenness was so bad that we esteemed him not, right? Like, like we, rather than exalting him as king of kings and lord of lords, we cast him outside the city with the rest of the trash, right? That's how broken and messed up our worldly economy is. How, how we value certain things and miss, completely miss the worth of the most beautiful things. And it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense for us to, as human beings, as men and women, to, to look to the world, hey, world, will you tell me what I'm worth? Will you tell me where my significance lies? I need, I need you to tell me that I'm worth something, right? And we look to the world for that. The same world that, by the way, said that Jesus was worthless. We're crazy. Where do we go to get our worth? Where do we go to get a sense of value? A sense of who, I am? who am I? What am I? How should I regard myself? How should I regard other people? In light of how God regards us. So the world wants us to find um, our worth and our identity in all, all kinds of places, right? They're, and these aren't even bad things, like a successful job. Good for you if you're successful. But the world says that's where your identity is. And the world would say, hey, you know, your identity is in being really, really, having a strong, really strong or beautiful body. If that's you, if you're one of the beautiful ones, one of the strong ones, good for you. But that's not your identity. The world says it is. The world says, look, you've got to have lots of money and lots of stuff in order to be happy, in order to be important, in order to be worth something. You've got to have, you know, this great family, a great marriage, great kids in order to be worth anything. Or you've got to have this incredible friend group with all kinds of influence and, you know, you do all the fun things and all the things that everybody's envious of on the weekends. That's how you're worth something. That's what the world drills into our heads. And Hebrews is telling, telling us, don't, don't listen to those lies. If any of those things describe you, good for you, but that's not your identity. That's not where it lies. That's not where we get our significance. The only way for us as disciples to be truly secure in our worth and our identity and who we are is to go outside the city. Is to go outside the city at the, the worldly walls of this world and its respectability and its sense of honor, and we have to go to Jesus to find our worth and our identity. Uh, Isaiah went on to talk about what he did outside those gates. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, like each of us to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquities. Here's, here's what I know about every single person in this room. We're, we wrestle with guilt. We wrestle with fear and anxiety. We wrestle with a sense of, have I, have I done enough? Have I accomplished enough? Even if you're incredibly successful, like everybody who's super successful is wondering, have I, have I had enough wins? Not to mention all of us in here who are wrestling with our abject failures. The voices in our head, whether we're telling them to ourselves or whether they're the voices of our parents or siblings or somebody, an ex or somebody who was in your life telling you you're nothing. We all, we all wrestle with that. How do you silence those voices? 
How do you make amends with those memories? Things you've done to people. Things people have done to you. Where do you go to get a sense of worth and significance? In the Old Testament, you know, the the types and the shadows, those placeholders that Hebrews was talking about, they would bring these animals to the temple. Like a lamb, right? And literally the priest would, would kill the lamb in front of the worshiper. And that man, woman, that family would watch the blood empty out of that lamb, watch the life and the power empty out of that living thing. And the way the grace of God strengthens us is when we go to Jesus outside the camp, when we look to him as the lamb of God who takes away our sins, who takes away our guilt, who takes away our shame, who takes away our failures, who takes away our insecurities, who takes away that, the, the, the terrible names you know, that, that are rattling around your head, the one who does that for us, do you know what that does? It's like you take that sin, you take that failure, you take that shame, you take that guilt, and you just you empty the blood. You kill it. It's dead. And it doesn't have any more power in our lives. And you give it to Jesus. It's an offering to him. The world has nowhere to go with its shame. The world has nowhere to go with its guilt, with its failures, with the things done to it and the things it does to others. And, and the only choices that the world really has is to, to kind of like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover those things up and I'm going I'm to try hard. I'm going to achieve a lot. I'm going to be an overachiever. And, 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 you know, maybe nobody will notice. And the other thing the world does, well, if I can't achieve... And I'm just going to normalize it. I'm going to bring it right out of the open. And I'm going to pretend like I'm not ashamed of this. And I'm, I'm not a failure. And, and then you kind of gather around people who have the same, you know, difficulties they're dealing with. And we just, we just make it normative. We celebrate it. Neither of those things work. Being strengthened by grace means that I'm not, I'm not here to overperform and I'm not here to normalize. I'm here to take my sin and my shame and my failures to Jesus. And he gladly, receives it. Come to me. All of our iniquities are laid on him. That's the gospel. That's how we're strengthened by grace, not because of what we're doing to cover it up, not because, well, I'm going to normalize this. I'm going to just kind of make peace with it. No, don't make peace with it. Kill it and give it to Jesus. It's the Lamb of God slain for the world. So you and I can be free. We wake up every morning, I'm strengthened by grace. And a disciple who's growing in this grace, you know, yeah, we're not going to believe this perfectly and we're going to, you know, fits and starts. But every day I'm just committed. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my acceptance. Jesus is my worth. Jesus is my value. He is the Lamb of God, slain for the world, slain for me. And he loved me and he gave himself for me. Does that make sense? We've got no lasting city here. This world has nothing for us for eternity. We need to go to Jesus, you know, outside the city. Verse 14, we don't have a lasting city here. We seek the city that is to come. And, and through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So, 
like this whole notion in verse 14, nothing in this world really can offer us any worthwhile identity, nothing permanent. Like I, I, here's, here's the best way I know to describe this. You can be on top of your game. I mean, the world can give you all of its accolades and, and the world has amnesia. It's like the world's ADHD. And then after, um, I don't know, months, 12 months, the world forgets you. There's nothing lasting in this world. How many of you, <laughs> raise your hands. I don't want you to shout it out and, oh, well, okay. Raise your hands if you remember who won the Super Bowl last year. That's like maybe a dozen. Really? Last year. They're playing again this year. <laughs> the, the, the Chiefs, right? Okay, so number one team in the world, top of their game. And like maybe 20 of you remembered a year later. We have no lasting city here. All right, who did the Chiefs beat last year? Anybody remember? There's more of you remember who they beat. <laughs> Got a bunch of Eagles fans here. Well done. Um, we have no lasting city here. This world is at ADHD and it can't focus on anything. This world is not going to give us a lasting, worthwhile identity. Um, it was so cool to learn this week that Tracy Chapman has a number one single now, Fast Car. At the Grammy, she got to perform and it was just like, wow, here's. Here's her industry giving her an ovation. You know, society gives her all kinds of downloads. It took her 30 years to get a number one hit, for that song to go number one. I, Kathy and I remember being in high school and hearing this gorgeous, like haunting voice. Who is that? And this new artist, Tracy Chapman. It was a beautiful song, and then it just kind of disappeared. And then I heard it again last year and asked Lydia, who is singing that? Oh, Luke Combs. Who's that? You know, some country star. That's really kind of cool that he's, you know, bringing the song back. And then they did this duet in the Grammys. So, so awesome. I wish Tracy Chapman the best. That's awesome. I'm sure that's incredibly gratifying to her to have a number one single. But who's going to have the number one single next month? And how long is it going to be before Fast Car is like, oh yeah, that song. Here we have no lasting city. But we can praise the one. We can offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and remember where our eternal home is, where our real worth, where our real value comes from. And every time we praise him, we're reminded of this gospel. Every time we come together and we sing these songs and we say these creeds and we hear these messages, we're reminded of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we want to praise him because that corrects the amnesia in us. That, that recalibrates our spiritual ADHD. So we're not going squirrel and running after this thing for our worth and for our value apart from the fact that he's worth it. <laughs> he's worthy of our praise, okay? Like, we need to acknowledge that too. So it's, he deserves it, but it's good for us. This, this fruit of lips that acknowledge his name reminds us of what is eternally true. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm strengthened by grace. Not by what I do, but what he's done.
And then verse 16 says, don't neglect to do good and to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do good and share with what you have. We might even put it this way. Go to those outside the gate and do good to them. Go to those the world rejects and share with them what you have. Be a blessing to those the world considers cursed. It's how the gospel worked in our lives. And as disciples, as mirrors, as Christians, little Christs, that's how we show this world, this city, this kingdom isn't going to last. We're putting on display the eternal permanent kingdom for all to see. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for inviting us um, outside this world and outside of its city and its structures that kind of give us a, a false identity and a, a worthless one, to be honest. And for calling us out to the, the place of shame, to, to be rid of our shame, the place of guilt, to be rid of our guilt, um, the place where the trash is to actually be given eternal value. Lord, thank you for, for Jesus who strengthens us by his grace. And we pray that as you make us, uh, as you grow us as disciples, uh, hopefully we can become more and more strengthened and, and less and less defensive and uh, the chip on our shoulders can get smaller and smaller. Lord, would you get glory in that? Would you help us to, to praise you and, and let our lips declare how good you are and then that doing, um, in that praising, remind us of how great the gospel is? And help us to do good and to share with those um, who are in need. Thank you for doing good to us and for sharing with us in our need. In Jesus' name, amen.